It is good to be back with you. Open up your Bibles to the book of Haggai. That is where we're going to be today. Uh, In my Bible, that's page 955. It's right after Zephaniah and right before Zechariah. So if you can find that, that's where we're going to be spending our time together. Uh, Rodney, it is good to see you here. Just want to acknowledge your presence with us and just let you know that we're always glad to see you when you're home from the field. And uh, we as a group will all be praying together that uh, whatever visa issues Rodney and Glenna and their family are trying to sort out will get sorted out. I know that uh, there are two institutions in the world that are not necessarily known for always getting things done on time, the U.S. government and the Chinese government, and now you get to work with both. So... Uh, We will be praying that the Lord will intervene there on your behalf. Speaking of our Lord, as we come to the book of Haggai this morning, we're going to be looking at the reality of God's present love that is here with us even now and was there with those people back in the day of the prophet Haggai. We know that God is an omnipresent God, but the question is this, what happens When a God who is infinitely loving and holy proves himself to be everywhere all at once. And the answer to the intersection of those two doctrinal concepts is really found here in the book of Haggai. But in order to really get what's happening, there's there's some background that really is necessary. We kind of have to go back and unroll the canvas, I guess you could say, before we can start to ever put any kind of paint or words onto it. Uh, There's a lot of background information that we have to know in terms of how these people were viewing their particular situation. For us, as Christians, we know that the Holy Spirit indwells us, right? Jesus told his disciples that when he left, he would send a helper who would even be better than his own presence, uh, who would be there in order to indwell uh, God's people permanently, perpetually, all the time. And so if you're a Christian today, the Holy Spirit is in you and God is present with you. And it's often true that we can take that constant presence of God for granted. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God, He abided with those who walked with Him, but He did not permanently and perpetually indwell all of them. The Spirit of God was often with His people. He would come upon His people. He would reside with His people corporately. He would lead and He would guide them, but He wasn't necessarily in them. And so for those people... Seeing the presence of God visibly in their midst meant everything to them. And when that presence was gone or removed, it was a really big deal. And that again, it can be hard for us to grasp, but grasping that is very, very important to understanding this text. So to really put ourselves back in their sandals, we have to do a little bit of an Old Testament overview. And our introduction this morning is going to be a little bit longer because of that. But I think it's very important for us to wander our way through the pages of some texts in the Old Testament, and then we'll come back and pull all the pieces together here in the book of Haggai. So we're going to spin the dial just a couple times and go back all the way to the Garden of Eden and start there. Okay, if you go back to the book of Genesis 3, you don't have to turn there, but if you go back to Genesis 3, it's very clear that God's expectation for his relationship with his people is that he would actually be present there together with them. Genesis 3, 8, 9 says that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Then the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? 
God was expecting that there would be this very present kind of relationship where mankind would walk in the presence of God Himself and that God Himself would be there present with His people. But because of their sin, that was not possible. And at the end of Genesis chapter 3, you see the stinger really in the curse upon man being that they're cast out of the Garden of Eden and therefore out of the presence of God as well, where he is no longer with his people. And now they will struggle in order to survive. You spin the dial and fast forward a little bit. Now there's a lot of places we could go because this is a consistent theme, this theme of God being with his people. But if we spin it again back to Moses' time, you find God coming to reveal himself to his people. And in Exodus 19, you see God taking up residence with his people and interacting with them visibly on top of Mount Sinai. Exodus 19 says this, And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. You see God's presence in the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 29, God says very specifically, the importance of the tabernacle is this now. God says, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God and they will know me. Right? You see this theme being woven all the way throughout the Old Testament. You, you spin the dial again and fast forward all the way to the time of David. And David knew all about the personal presence of God. What does he say in Psalm 23? He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there you are, what? With me. He understood the presence and the value of, of God's being present there with him. He understood about the, the, the necessary presence of God with his people, and that's why he wanted to build the temple. And he gives instructions to his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. David says to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and act, and do not fear nor be dismayed of the Lord God, for he is with you. He will not fail you, nor forsake you, until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. God will be with you. And then sure enough, Solomon, when he finishes building the temple, it's recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 8, he stands before the temple with his arms outstretched to heaven, and he says these words. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord, and he said, But will God dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Listen now, Lord, that your eyes may be open toward this house day and night. Then the Lord said, I have consecrated this house you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there with you perpetually. Do you see the theme that's being uh, repeated here over and over and over again as God's people seek his presence with them, and God says, My presence will be there with you. You see, this idea mattered to the people of God because it was one of the most fundamental promises that God had made to His people. Deuteronomy 31.8 captures it well. It says, The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. 
And so for the people of God in the Old Testament, as long as they knew that God was there with them, they knew that they had nothing to fear. They knew that they need not be dismayed because this great God who loved them would never fail them, would never forsake them. And so imagine with me, having looked at all that background very quickly, the absolute horror that would have been in their minds, should have been in their minds, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 10, where the glory of God swoops over the city and departs from the holy place to the inner court, and from the inner court to the outer court of the temple, and from the outer court of the temple to the threshold of the temple, and from the threshold of the temple right out of the city. It's gone. And yet, no one noticed. And that city and that temple were destroyed and God's visible presence was removed from His people. And that is where Haggai enters in. Nearly 90 years after that temple is destroyed, a very long period of time goes by from the vision of God's glory departing the temple and the temple is destroyed by, by the Babylonians. The people are taken into captivity and after many decades, 50,000 people are allowed to come back to the land. It's been a long time since they've been aware of God's presence in their midst. And right away, the people come back into the land and they get to work. They get busy doing what God had commanded them to do. They get busy laying the foundations for the new temple. But then they stop because they had trouble. They had some very legitimate excuses. Right? They ran into money problems. They ran into drought. They ran into political difficulties where the Samaritans from up north came down and said, you guys need to stop because it's clear that you're rebuilding your nation so that you can oppose the great Persian Empire. And they have to appeal to King Darius and Darius has to come in and, and sort it out for them. And all of that to say that the work on the temple over the course of about 15 years grinds to a screeching halt. And the people say, well, in the meantime, until we get this sorted out, we're in a position to keep working on the temple, we may as well go ahead and begin to rebuild our houses and our lives and our cities. And so they rebuild their houses, they rebuild their lives while the temple lays there empty. And the book of Haggai is written by the prophet Haggai 15 years after the people return to the nation. And they've got a problem. They're trying to do God's work but they're not convinced that God is there with them because they cannot see Him. They had good excuses, but God wasn't having them. Look with me at Haggai chapter 1, verse 4. God says, Is it now time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? What kind of an excuse is that? God says. Now therefore, verse 5, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into the purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. What's he saying to them? He's saying, Things aren't working out for you because you're not doing what I told you to do. If you did what I told you to do, you wouldn't be putting your money into a purse that's full of holes. So here's what you're to do, verse 8. And I love this. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple so that I'll be pleased. He says, enough with your excuses. Go up to the mountains, chop down a tree, get some lumber, and come back here and build my house. Just do it already. Enough with the excuses. 
And so Haggai's message is one that is meant to reassure the people that God is present and He is always their God. He's, he's trying to tell the people that they had their priorities in the wrong place and Haggai was here to challenge those priorities. Now, you look at this book and you'll find right away a very different tone from most of the other prophets that we have been looking at. Look with me at what happens in verse 12. The people hear the words of Haggai as he says, your priorities are all screwed up. And then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, what do they do? I love this. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai, his prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Wow! Their captivity and their time away from their land and from their temple and from their God has really done them good. Because nowhere else in the Minor Prophets have we seen the people do this with this kind of a spirit. And what is God's reaction there in, in verse 13? Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by commission of the Lord to the people's saying. This is very important. What does God say to His people when they return and say, whatever you say, we'll do it. We'll take our axe. We'll go get a tree. We'll build the house. And God says them, I am with you. The very words that they needed to hear that would enable them to be faithful, here they are. Within weeks... The text tells us that it's within three weeks, Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest had had marshaled the labor force to set about the work with renewed enthusiasm. And as we roll into chapter 2, which is where our text will be today, we find the people having restarted the work, but they are profoundly discouraged because it is extremely shabby. They're building the house, but it doesn't look like much. Verse 3, they say, who, and the people weep. They, they cry because some of them were old enough to remember the former temple in all of its glory. And now they see what they're rebuilding and they say, this thing is a shell of its former self. It's not worth anything. And in fact, they say in verse 3, this seems like nothing in comparison to the temple that we once had. And they're very discouraged. And so Haggai's word of encouragement in chapter 2 comes to them on October 17, 520 B.C., And his message to them in chapter 2 is that God is present with you and therefore you can be faithful. And that is therefore the message to us as well this morning. God is here with us this morning and so we must be faithful. You see, the presence of a loving God empowers a life of faithfulness. That's the point that Haggai was trying to get across to these people. He said, I know that God's presence matters to you. And I'm here to tell you that He is here with you even today. And so in this text, chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, we're really going to look at four different aspects of what God's presence brought to His people. The first thing we see here is that God's presence brought them strength in verses 4 and 5. Haggai says, in order to encourage the people, but now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which was made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst, so do not now fear. 
God's presence always brings strength. These people in chapter 2, verse 1, they're discouraged because they come to the crushing realization that their efforts amount to nothing. And yet Haggai, as one commentator says it, breaks into their lives like a dispatch rider from the headquarters of the supreme commander and says, take courage and do your work because I, the Lord, am with you. And he says it three times to three different audiences, to the governor, to the high priest, and to all the people. He says, take courage, take courage, take courage. Why? Because he was there with them. All the encouragement that we need is to understand that God is with us. And therefore, whom shall I fear? David says in the book of Psalms. God's message for them is, do your job. Because I'm still here. His presence translates into our ability to be faithful. The best illustration that I can think of of this is really the first day of kindergarten, right? Those of you who, who have children and who have taken them to drop them off at their first day of school, you know what this is like, right? Where, where they walk into the classroom and as they're walking into the classroom, your, your child looks back over their shoulder and you, can, you know what's in their mind. Can I actually do this? Can I actually do this? Can I walk into this classroom? And as they look back over their shoulder and they see mom and dad standing there, it's the presence of mom and dad that allows them to buck up and say, I can do this. And what are mom and dad saying? I can't do this. <laughs> but they have to. But it's the presence of the authority. It's the presence of the parent that gives the child the confidence necessary to say, yes, I can do this and I'm going to get down to work. And that's what God is saying. He's trying to encourage them much as a parent with this very loving tone in his voice that we see here all throughout this book. He says, take courage. Take courage. No, folks, you all take courage because I'm here. So, And he says it very bluntly. He says, and do your work. It's so encouraging. God's presence is linked to His promise. And the result is He's saying, why are you afraid? And, and you look there at verse 5 and He says, look, I, don't, I haven't forgotten the promises which I made to you when you were coming out of Egypt. And, and He encourages them to look back to the past and forward in anticipation of the future in order to deal with the problems they had there in the present. He says, look to the past for encouragement in the future. He, and he links his presence with them in that day all the way back through their history to the covenant that he had made with them. He, he connects his presence currently with them all the way back to his covenantal promises. And he's essentially saying, look, folks, haven't I been faithful to you and your people over the course of a thousand years of your unfaithfulness? And so therefore now today, if you're going to be faithful, don't you think that I'm going to remain faithful to my promises? He says, I, I've been faithful to you for so long when you were unfaithful and now today when you actually are being faithful, do you think that this is the day that I'll decide to walk away? He says, I don't think so. And even though the temple was gone, even though they couldn't see him, that didn't mean that he wasn't there or that he had forgotten his promises to them or that his nature had changed. He was still omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God and he was their God. And he loved them. And based upon those promises from a thousand years before during the days of Moses, 
His presence was still amongst them and therefore they could take strength. They could have courage and they could get to work picking up their axe, cutting down the tree and hauling the lumber back to build God's house. They could be faithful to His commands. The form of the verb there that's used is, in our Bibles it says, do not fear, but the force of it really is to stop fearing. Stop fearing. Get to work. God says, your, your excuses are meaningless. Stop with the excuses and just do it because I am here and I will empower you. The very presence and power of God who delivered the people from Pharaoh was already present to make sure that they could complete the task before them. And the very same thing is true for us. The God who defeated Pharaoh, the God who stopped the sun in its tracks, the God who brought the people back from Babylon and crushed the head of death is here now ready to strengthen you for a life of faithfulness to him. And he is saying now, take courage, be faithful, and do your work. You say, well, how do you extrapolate that from the book of Haggai? Because it's exactly what Jesus said in his final words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. He says, go therefore and teach them to observe all that I've commanded. What's he saying? He's saying, get to work, be faithful. Why? He says, because I am with you always. And then he goes back to heaven. The application is there for us, therefore. Do your job. The Lord is on your side. He is the one who loves you enough to establish a relationship with you and therefore you are never apart from Him. He now resides within you. He is with you always. And a life of faithfulness is tied directly back and is empowered by your awareness that God is present. God's present brings strength to his people. The second thing God's presence brings is hope. And that's given to us in verses 6 through 7. God's presence brought them hope. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of of hosts after having told them to look to the past for his faithfulness he he says now look to the future and take hope by what i'm going to do he's saying don't look at the short term look at the long term and and when you do folks you'll remember what is still yet to come because for these people god had already made all sorts of promises that hadn't yet been fulfilled and god is saying don't forget about those things that i promised you i will bring to pass Look at the description. He says, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake the very nations themselves. And as God turns his attention to what he is going to do in the future, it's almost as though you can begin to feel the ground shaking like a freight train that's still out of view, but you know it's on its way. Right? You can hear stuff starting to rattle. It's not all nailed down quite tight. God says, I'm coming. And when, I'm co when I come, I'm going to turn the, the, the whole world upside down and shake all the loose change out. If you think that the temple you're trying to build me now is shabby, just wait till I show up. I'm going to take the nations, turn them on their head, and shake them until all the wealth of those nations comes pouring into this temple. That, that's his promise. The verb that he says there, or that he uses there in verse 6, the verb that God uses, it's the Hebrew word ra'ash. 
And it's an onomatopoeic word that denotes a quaking and a violent upheaval in the natural order of things, right? It's a word that sounds like what it is. It sounds very violent. It ra'ash, right? Nothing is where it should be. It's very, very violent. Their problem for these people is that they were looking back and from what they could see, there was no hope. They were shattered. They were broken. They were crushed. But God speaks again and He says, look to the future when I shake up everything and if you will just be faithful to build today, He would be faithful to make it spectacular in that day. The present was leading to a future that would make even the temple of Solomon look dingy. If God can shake the loose change out of the stingy nations, if He's that powerful, if He can take all their wealth, verse 7, and dump it into His own temple, then don't you think that His presence on our side of this great cosmic war should give us hope? That was His message to those people, and it is still true for us because that day when God shakes the earth is still coming out in the future. There's a, a perfect picture of this because the day would come when the nations would come to pay homage to their God on the very same site where these people began building their shack of a temple. And in that day, the lack of adornment, all the things that they could not afford would be compensated for by God's enemies. And He would be the one to see to that. How would He compensate for their lack of ability to furnish it correctly for this great and holy God? He would fill, and this is what I love in this verse, God says at the end of verse 7, I will fill this house with my glory. Turn with me over to Ezekiel chapter 43 because it's actually described to us in great detail exactly what it looks like when God fills the house with glory. Then he led me, verse 1, to the gate, and the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory, the whole thing. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. The same glory that left is now coming back. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chebar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. The very gate from where it had departed, now it comes swooping back into the temple. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the whole house. Then I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, get this, where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings when they die. Because now I am here permanently to live with my people, the soles of His feet, planted in the inner court of His temple, His glory living and abiding there once more. That's what God is telling these people. He's saying, look forward to the day when my glory invades this place and I once again take up my residency with you permanently. God's King would reside in that temple with His people forever, without sin, without failure, filled with glory. And that is able to take place through the presence 
of the Messiah. And even Solomon's temple didn't have that. And that's why this temple that these people are commanded to build is better. Because it would be filled one day with the glory of God in the person of Christ. The Apostle John talks about this with us. He says that Jesus Christ was the glory of God made flesh. The one through whom we're now able to see the glory of God. The very same glory that will will one day be permanently placed amongst His people in all its fullness. John says, We beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And that's the beauty of Christ coming to be with us. His name was Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And we're told here in Haggai chapter 2 that when the day comes when the Lord takes up residence physically in His temple, someday in the future, the whole earth will tremble at the glory of it. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 19 says of that day that men will go into caves of the rocks, into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth tremble. And so in order to give those people hope, in order to give us hope, God commanded them to look to the future, to the day when He would establish His temple with the full glory of His presence, shaking everything else loose except His kingdom and those who belong to it. You see, we are those people who cannot be shaken. We are those people who have seen just the foretaste of the full glory of God in the person of Christ. And in His person, as we see His glory, we have hope that what He will do in the future will be even greater and grander than that which we have experienced in the past. And so when we look to our God and we understand the importance of His presence with us, it not only brings us strength to be faithful today, it also brings us great hope for what He will do in the future. We, just like the people building that temple, we have hope. No matter the difficulty before us, no matter the excuses that we're, te- that we're tempted to make, no matter our own insignificance before His great glory, the King is coming. And He's going to fill that temple up with all of His glory. And, and so what does the presence of God mean amongst us? It means that the whole earth should be trembling before Him and that we should hope in Him. Because the presence of a loving God, it it brings hope to us. We continue on into verse 8, and we find out that God's presence also brings ownership. And I love this in verse 8 because it's so blunt. God basically said, well, let me read it to you, then I'll, I'll interpret it. It says, the silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. It's not that God is being greedy here for all the money in the world. That's not what's going on. What He's saying to these people is this. I don't need your money because it's all mine. Don't worry about what you cannot provide me. Don't worry that this temple looks so shabby. What you need to be worried about is me. He's saying, all I want is you. All that silver that you lack, all that gold that you lack... I already own all of it anyway. What I really want, folks, is you you and your heart. That's what God is saying. His presence proves to them His ownership over them. He's saying, oh, and by the way, 
Stop with the excuses. Stop telling me that you can't be faithful because you can't do a good enough job. I'm not so concerned about all the adornments of the temple. He's saying, I'm concerned that you belong to me. That your hearts are held in the palm of my hands. That's what he's saying. One man says it this way. If God had wanted to, he could create whole galaxies filled with gold. He wasn't concerned about the gold. He already had all of it. The silver was his. The gold was his. That's what God says. It was estimated that in Solomon's temple, over $20 million worth of gold went to overlay the Holy of Holies. And God is saying, I don't, folks, I, I don't need $20 million worth of gold to overlay this temple that you're building. What I need is your heart. It wasn't the gold that would make this temple glorious. It wasn't banks bursting with gold and it wasn't vaults filled with silver. What would make this temple glorious would be His presence amongst His people. That is what would make it glorious. And no amount of gold, no amount of silver could compare because He already has all of that. God's intention here is to remind these people about His omnipresent love for them and to show them that even though they couldn't see Him, He still owned them and they were still His people. You see, God wants the hearts of His people. That is what is worthy and worthwhile to Him. He wants to make His residence amongst these people. And if His presence amongst us in the person of Christ isn't proof of His love for us, folks, I don't know what is. He is God. He is here. And He owns us. Why? Because He wants to. The silver and the gold, they mean nothing to Him. It's faithfulness from His people that brings Him glory. And someday that glory will fill up His temple as He dwells in their midst. And so in the meantime, he, He's trying to encourage these people here. And it, the, the sense of it's really captured well in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, where God says a very similar statement. He says this, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He's saying, you are mine. I will protect you. It's your job now to be faithful to me. And then the day will come when the glorious presence resides with us and He fully owns us in every way. You see, God's presence, it, it brings strength to His people to be faithful. It brings hope to His people to be faithful. And it brings a sense of ownership where they know that God is really concerned about them and their heart, not all the outward adornments of the temple. Then He goes into verse 9. And we see the final thing that God's presence brings to His people here. He, His presence brings peace. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You see, the greatest blessing that was brought by God's presence wasn't just strength, hope, or ownership. It was the quiet peace that came with Him. Because since the fall of man all the way back in Genesis 3, God has been at war with sin. God has been separated from mankind because of their sin. 
And He had been judging His people, been judging the nations for their sinfulness. And yet here, in this picture that we're given of the end of time, when the Lord comes back to His people Israel, uniting us from all the nations with those people, we find that God is concerned about the peace that is now brought with mankind. Where we all now, Jew and Gentile, are brought together in Christ, able to reside with Him in peace. No more are we at war with Him. No more is He at war with our sin. Now there is peace that is brought by Him. And when the end comes and He sits in this temple, peace would come with Him. And you can almost, as you read this text, hear the sound of nothing that comes with it. Where the sound of the warfare of God versus sin, man versus God, all of it's gone. And there's no noise whatsoever. Because in this place, I will give peace, God says. That's what God's presence brings to His people. And the peace that He's talking about here, it's it's not just the spiritual peace which He brought about in Jerusalem and grants to believers now, like Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, peace that surpasses all understanding. That peace that we have now with God through His Holy Spirit is merely a divine foretaste of the profound peace that is coming when all is made right in the world. It is the ultimate external peace that He will bring as the Prince of Peace. And in that day, all the promises of restoration, all the promises of reconciliation, will come to pass in the person of Christ as He sits upon His throne. That will be a peace that is truly beyond our comprehension. It will be perfect. It will be permanent. And when He is present with us, He is at peace. Revelation 21 verse 3 gives us a picture of this moment when God returns back to His people and sits upon His throne bringing peace with Him. And here is the description that's given in Revelation chapter 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the temple of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. Get this. They shall be His people. God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying, or pain. For these things, they have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, bringing with him a message of peace, Behold, now I am making all things new. See, God wanted the people in Haggai's day not to worry about their lack of wealth or their weakness. He just wanted them to be aware that He was with them and that He wanted and demanded their faithfulness. If they would be faithful, then the day would come when He would invade that temple, live with them, and bring His profound peace to them forever. These people, you see, they didn't think that they were strong enough. They didn't think that they were good enough. They didn't think that they were capable of bringing God-worthy offerings. And God's response to them is not, yes, you are strong enough. His response is not, yes, you are good enough. His response is not, yes, your offerings are worthy of my glory. His response is to say, I know you're not good enough. I know you're not strong enough. And that is why I am coming here to be with you because I am strong and good enough for you. What you lack, I now provide. 
And that is the whole point for us. We are not great. We are not glorious. We are not grand as God is. We are not capable of living lives that are worthy offerings of Him. What do I have to offer my God that He needs? All the silver is His. All the gold is His. We say, I can't be like so and so. My life isn't as important as theirs. I can't devote myself in the same perfect way that I would like to. Or, the trials and the obstacles in my life, they, they prevent me from being obedient. God's message in this text to the people in Haggai's day, and I think to us in our day, is simply this. Stop the excuses and get to work. Be faithful. That is what He requires of you. He doesn't require ambitious significance. He doesn't require grand accomplishment. What He does require is your faithful obedience to His commands. We say, but that's hard. It's hard to do that. How am I supposed to do that? And the answer is found in this very same text. Out of an awareness that He is now not only with you, but He is also in you. You see, the very same presence that these people desired and that God promised to them is now brought to us. And now, in a very few short minutes, we have to do a little bit of a survey of the New Testament to see what is told to us about God's presence with us here, now, even today, that enables our faithfulness to Him. We're told that the Holy Spirit, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit brings to us now strength. Romans 8.26 The Spirit helps our what? Weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What is the significance of the fact that God is now present with us in His Holy Spirit indwelling us? His presence brings us strength. Romans 15.13 The presence of God with us now brings us hope. Text says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of who? The Holy Spirit. You see, God's presence with His people, it brings strength. It brings hope back then and now. Ephesians 1.13 tells us that the presence of God's Spirit also brings ownership. It says, having believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Brings strength, brings hope, brings ownership, and finally, it brings peace. In John chapter 14, as Jesus explains the benefit of the Helper that would come, He says this, When I leave and the Spirit comes, peace I am leaving with you. My peace I give to you in the person of My Holy Spirit. You see, we already have the presence of God with us right now in the person of God's Holy Spirit. And He does bring us strength. He does bring us hope. He does bring us awareness of our ownership by God. He does bring us peace even today. And all of those things, all of those ministries of God's Holy Spirit with us today are nothing more than a down payment on the glory that will one day come when we stand before God seeing Him face to face. It says we will be transformed from glory, this glory, the glory of having the Spirit within us now, to that glory of seeing Him perfectly. The day when it comes, when we 
when we dwell with God, seeing Him perfectly, we will understand the true glory of God as, as awareness of Him, awareness of His glory invades our life and our senses as He takes His place upon His throne. Ephesians 1.14 says that the Holy Spirit now is just the pledge, the down payment of the inheritance that is yet to come. And all the benefits of God's presence with us now they're a foretaste of the day when we realize the fullness of His presence with us. The day when He sits enthroned in His temple amongst His people. The nation of Israel will see Him and they will know Him. We will see Him and we will know Him. And we will be just like Him having seen Him for who He is. You see, just as God promised back in the book of Haggai, this is all a prophecy of what would come in the future. And the day will come when we will stand before God in His temple. We will feel the earth shake. We will see the nations pour in. We will see His people made secure. We will look to His Spirit for strength. We look now to His Spirit for hope in the future. We obey today because He owns our hearts. And we strive to be faithful, rejoicing in the peace that is brought to us now by the One who loved us gave Himself up for us and has shown us the fullness of the glory of God. That's the beauty of God's present glory dwelling with us here even now. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank You for this text that explains to us so profoundly the benefits of having a God who loves to reside with us. And so, Father, may we now be faithful even to You as You have commanded and, and do expect. We, we see that expectation back upon these people in Haggai's day that You just wanted them to be faithful. And Father, we're well aware that that is Your desire for us today. And so may we depend upon the strength and the hope and the peace and the presence of Your Spirit to empower our faithfulness and our efforts to be faithful to You even now. We are thank you for your work on our behalf. You have changed us. You have made us new. And we look forward to seeing what you will do in the future when we see your glory face to face. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.